Hey everybody, welcome to the Church at South Point podcast. We're so glad that you have found your way to our little corner of the online universe. This Lent, in the weeks leading up to Easter, we are slowing it way down. We're sitting with Jesus in the wilderness and letting the Holy Spirit draw questions to the surface that need our attention, even when they make us feel a bit uncomfortable. I'm so glad you've come to join us. Why? Why is there suffering? Big questions like, who is God? Is God a prime mover, a first cause, the ground of being, a being whose essence is identical with existence? Or is God being itself? What about suffering? If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving, why is there suffering? If even a moderately good human being, if given the power to do so, would eliminate suffering, why then, if there is a God, do such painful states of affairs exist? Maybe God isn't all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving. Maybe God doesn't exist at all. Or maybe God is remote, a clockmaker who set things in motion, but doesn't have any impact on the unfolding of things. Or maybe it's because God gave humans free will with the capacity to choose good from evil, and that's why they're suffering, because we've made it happen. Or maybe God's in process, unfolding as we are unfolding rather than omniscient, and therefore can't protect us from what is yet unknown, only respond to what is. Or maybe God is bound by the same laws of nature that we are, so God is limited, not omnipotent. Or maybe evil is caused at times by the immoral action of supernatural beings, and God is tolerating evil for a season because to pull up the tares will pull up the wheat. In time, it will be put right. Or maybe suffering is our teacher, our transformer. Or maybe we trust that God is good all the time and all the time God is good and God is in control and everything happens for a reason. This is a theological conundrum. It's called theodicy. It's our human attempts to try to explain both the existence of suffering and what seems to be evil and the existence of God all at the same time. Why? Why is there suffering? Why do the people I love suffer? Why do I suffer? And since the book of Job, human beings have been spouting answers to these questions, offering them up often as truth with a fair degree of certitude. I came across this quote this week by Alvin Plantinga. And here I must say that most attempts to explain why God permits evil theodicies, as we may call them, strike me as tepid, shallow, and ultimately frivolous. Hmm. We find an example of theodicy in this passage. There's a young man, and he happens to be blind and very poor because he's blind. And he's sitting alongside the road, probably begging. And Jesus and his disciples walk by. Now, Jesus sees this human being and has compassion, but the disciples really don't see him. What they see is a theological puzzle to analyze. 
and they point to Jesus. So Jesus, you know, it, this man who sinned him or his parents. It's the same theodicy that Job's friends used, right? If you suffer, you must have done something wrong. And this theological construct protects God. God can remain all good, all knowing, and all loving because it's our fault. And it makes us feel like we're in control because if suffering is caused by the person who suffered, then maybe if we try hard enough and get it right, then nothing bad will happen to us. But good people suffer all the time. That's what one thing the book of Job is about. Who sinned? That's not the only question in this story. The passage is actually peppered with them if you read on. And that's what I'm going to do. We're just going to kind of walk through all these questions later. <laughs> After Jesus spit in the dirt, mixed up a bit of mud, placed the mud in his eyes. Later, after the man washed his eyes off and found he could see, later, after he ran back home to show his neighbors, they began to ask questions too. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? I think he is. I don't think he is. I think he just looks like that man. And they're talking all about him as if he's just an object in the room. And the whole time he kept saying, I'm the man, I'm the man. No, I really am him. When they finally notice him and hear his story, there isn't like this shared joy or an expression of enthusiasm that he could see. There's no celebration that this blind man is no longer blind. Instead, there's just more questions. Well, how were your eyes opened? And I'm reading the text here. Well, this man called Jesus made mud and put it on my eyes and said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they say to him, well, where is he? And he says, I don't know. So then they take him, this theological and biological conundrum that has appeared to the Pharisees, because maybe the Pharisees can figure him out. But guess what? They are also not excited by this blind man's sudden vision. And instead, they pepper him with questions too. Did I tell you it was the Sabbath? Jesus made mud on the Sabbath and opened his eyes on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are saying, well, how did you receive your sight? And he said to them, well, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I can see. And some of the Pharisees were like, wait a minute, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And the others are saying, well, how can a man who was a sinner do such signs? And so there's all this division and arguing amongst them. Mm -hmm. So here's a man who tells them about Jesus and the spit and the mud and the pool and the sudden burst of brightness blasting his eyes and the shape of things emerging from the shadows. And they're missing the miracle of the moment because, oh no, it's the Sabbath and Jesus spit and made mud on the Sabbath. And that's work. This man is not from God. So then confused, they say to the man, what do you say about him? And he says, he's a prophet. And guess what? They don't like that answer either. They're very vexed. They don't believe he's been blind. So they go call the parents and they say, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And his parents say, well, he is our son and he was born blind and now he does see, but we don't know who healed him. We don't know what happened because they're afraid. 
because the leaders have said, if anybody confesses Jesus as Christ, they're going to be thrown out of the synagogue. So they say, he's old enough, go ask him. So his neighbors don't really care that he's gained his sight. His parents aren't sticking up for him. The religious leaders think he's lying. It's really a tough thing to be a walking miracle in an age of fear and skepticism. So the Pharisees call the man, note again, the Pharisees call the man who has been blind to come over. And they say this, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, meaning give glory to God by agreeing with us. Give glory to God by confirming our negative theological bias. Tell us he's bad. And he answers, well, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And they say to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Same question. He's already answered now like three times. And I think he's starting to get a little bit perturbed. It's a little bit of a crazy maker, these conversations, because after all, they're missing the point entirely, which is he can see, he can look them in the eyes. He sees the little sweat beating on their forehead as they think and think and wrestle with their theological constructs. He sees the little veins bulging in their necks and they sit there questioning his truth. And he answers them with a few questions of his own now. He said, I have told you already, and you're not listening. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciple? <laughs> and the Pharisees catch the sarcasm. And it says they reviled him saying, you're his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. And we know God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he came from. And then the blind man continues with the sarcasm why this is an amazing thing you do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes we know that god does not listen to sinners but if anyone is a worshiper of god and does his will god listens to him never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from god he could do nothing and guess what now they get really angry you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out for being healed of blindness. So instead of joy and celebration, instead of reveling in this glory, glory and goodness, all they do is perseverate over how this miracle doesn't fit their theological box. And all these questions are flowing from pre-existing theological biases, which covered their minds like mud, like the mud Jesus smeared on the blind man. Their theological notions about sin and suffering and miracles and God's character needed to be washed away from their eyes. It was keeping them from seeing the good news of this man who's no longer blind. And while the Pharisees are asking their questions and getting angry and all, Jesus just goes out and he seeks out this man. And then he asks him a question of his own. Do you believe in the son of man? And the man replied with one more of his own questions. Well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you've seen him. He's speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. And I love this moment 
because the blind man and Jesus are looking into each other's eyes and Jesus is seen by this blind man for who he really is. He's not the evil teacher who breaks the Sabbath or even the prophet. He is the Christ, the promised one. The blind man sees Jesus literally with his own eyes and figuratively with his heart. And likewise, Jesus is the only one who sees this man who really sees him not as a sinner, not as somebody born of sin, but as somebody who's worthy of attention and care and belonging and worthy of being searched out. He's not a theological puzzle. He's beloved. So they see each other. And in this moment, the questions fall away. There's just this feeling of, of being known and being seen and knowing and seeing. And it's enough. It's this beautiful contemplative way of knowing. I wonder if that's the kind of knowing Jesus was getting at when he said, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. And I wonder if the transforming question isn't why is there suffering or who sinned, but how, how might the glory of God be manifesting in this moment? Which is a scary question to ask when you're really suffering. Of course, the Pharisees are lurking in the background. I don't know why they always seem to be lurking in the background, but they hear Jesus say, I have come for this, that those who are blind will see and those who will see will become blind. And then the passage ends with one last question. The Pharisees are asking it. Are we also blind? So we've seen in the story that on the surface, it's a blind man who's healed by Jesus with a bit of mud and spit. But the passage is long and peppered with questions, and it seems as though the questions themselves, as well as theological certitudes, blind the Pharisees to the beauty of the healing. So there's this second story of blindness within the story of blindness. And that has made me wonder this week about mental activity itself. Our theological questions, our certitudes, even our curiosity, which I have a lot of, can maybe at times become a film of mud that keeps us from being able to see the gentlest movements and presence of God. I wonder, what are the unresolved theological questions that might, hmm, dare I say, blur your vision? What certitudes have captured your mind so much that your heart is no longer really noticing the glory of God? And by glory, can I just say, I mean anything, anything that's flowing from the river of divine presence in the universe. What is the stimulus that we would rather ignore because it doesn't fit our certitudes and our boxes? Because maybe the stimulus we see offends us. Okay, now here's the part where I feel like maybe I should stop. <laughs> This is where it gets a little vulnerable. Okay, so I think we're really good at identifying the log in our more conservative brothers and sisters' eyes, right? I mean, the obvious like play out here is that they miss the glory of God manifest in, say, a transgender person or the marriage between two men and two, two women. I, I think that's absolutely right, and we have every reason in the world to call that out. But what about the log in our own eyes? We who are on the more liberal end of the spectrum, 
What are the categories of true, false, right, wrong, good, bad, big, little, that we expect God's goodness to operate within? Might it be possible that when God moves outside of those, we too have a propensity towards blindness? Okay, here's one I'll throw at you because we've talked about this. I've talked about this with a lot of people. What if someone came to you and told you about how they asked God for a parking spot and one appeared and that person took that parking space as a little bit of manna in the wilderness journey they were going through and said, God gave me a parking spot. Would you believe them? You might say from your theological perspective that God doesn't answer prayers for parking spots. But what if God shows up in the microcosm of our lives, giving us little snippets of relief in the midst of suffering? And what if that gift of manna on that given day was a parking space for a weary mom arriving for her cancer treatment? And that one spot helped her seem felt and known by God. Would you believe her testimony then? Okay, here's the vulnerable bit. I noticed over the fall and the winter that I felt this little bit of inner resistance to people's testimonies, dramatic testimonies of meeting God. Craig was coming back with a lot of them from California. And I just felt this skepticism in me that wasn't there before this little edge of defendedness that resisted these stories. I can feel my disappointment and, and suffering. And maybe how that has given my theology a certain predisposition against the more dramatic. Do you know what I mean? I've noticed too this predisposition showing up a little bit in my prayers. I don't ask God for much anymore. That's a bad confession as a pastor, maybe. I'm more likely to be comfortable sitting quietly in silence, contemplatively receiving whatever God brings. I notice I have made a pretty nice theological container to rationalize the change in my prayers. And yet this week, and in my deep winter time, I began to think, yeah, but didn't Jesus say when he taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, lead me, deliver me, forgive me, seems to be inviting us to ask. I remember when I lived in a squatter community in Manila, was I not surrounded by poor people who literally cried out to God for their daily bread? And who had daily stories of how God provided the manna they needed to survive that day. Now, here's the thing. My sit in silence as a way of praying is a deeply good contemplative practice that widens my awareness of God and really calms my jangled nervous system. However, might it also at times reflect my privilege? Because my cupboards are so steadily full of food that I don't need to ask God for my daily bread. Or maybe even more vulnerably, could it be a reflection of my attachment style, which is slightly avoidant, conditioned as I am to meeting my own needs? So these were the thoughts I pondered in my head during the dead of winter in epiphany. Remember, expand your vision of God. So I did this little experiment. I began to pray old-fashioned prayers for what I needed, very specific and I began to notice little things I prayed for often, not always often found resolution. Hmm. Not always the big things, they were still messy, but I saw these little things, small miracles. And guess what? I kind of felt a little closer to God than I had felt 
in a while. This week's been a really hard week. I found myself worried a lot about money. And I worried because I found out that I probably have a degenerative disc disease in my neck like my mom. And I felt myself just sinking into sitting in the silence, a silence that's actually not a form of prayer. It's just a form of dissociation. And I remember this passage and these thoughts that I'm coming my way while I'm sort of raining. And I thought, okay, God, okay. Show me your glory. How might your glory show up in the midst of these new experiences of suffering? I'm looking. Help me to see. So that's really personal. I really struggle with with this topic of prayer. I think because I grew up with a chronically ill sister and we were always told that if we prayed more, she'd get better and she didn't. So I'm really sensitive to this particular thing. And it's made it kind of tricky for me to ask God for things. And I'm sorry. I wish I was a more like (laughs) spiritual pastor in that regard, but there you go. That's my struggle. And I just offer that to you. So this Lent, as you take time to sit in the wilderness and live questions, maybe God will reveal to you how some of your own theological questions or traumas or certitudes have become like a bit of mud over your eyes. And if this is so, I invite you to lean into repentance with something maybe even like joy. Like God, maybe just maybe you're bigger than I have let you be. Maybe you're nearer than I have lately been led to assume. Maybe you're providing for me in ways I can't begin to comprehend. Maybe you're caring for the people I love who are suffering in ways I can't yet see. And maybe we're just not all alone as we feel. And maybe it's possible that I can practice leaning into you for more support. Forgive me for the ways I have hemmed in your glory, for letting my theological conundrums and questions, my whys and hows and where are you, keep me from believing, keep me from seeing. Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Thank you, Anne, for giving us the long version. (laughs) This is um, time for prayers of the people. And um, so I invite you, we're going to do this in three movements, um, ourselves, those close to us, and the world. So I invite you to close your eyes. I'm going to put my hand on my heart. If that feels supportive to you, I invite you to do that as well. And as we begin, imagine that you are the blind man, perhaps after he's been healed. And find yourself in Jesus's gaze. And instead of all those questions that maybe your friends or neighbors or smart people, you know, those questions, you hear a question from Jesus asking you, what do you most need to see? 
And then just imagine what you want to answer. May I see healing. May I see peace. May I see how beloved I am in your sight. So I'm going to give a moment of silence just for you to name what you most need to see for yourself. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Now in this second movement, imagine someone you know who's close to you, a family member or a dear friend. And you are standing next to Jesus as they ask for what they most need. So pick that person and hold them in your imagination. I'm going to hold Jess. And imagine in response to their asking that Jesus says to them with your prayers for them, may you be well, may you be healed, may you find peace, may you have enough. So I'll give some silence for that to unfold in your imagination and prayer. Lord, in your mercy. And now in this third movement for the world, I invite you to again, find yourself standing next to Jesus. And think of a place or a people and imagine that place or that people asking for what they need. So it could be the people of the Ukraine, or it could be the mothers in Russia with their sons fighting in the Ukraine, or it may be a place of drought like Ethiopia, or it may be foster kids in Surrey or people with substance use in our community, whatever it is, draw that people or that place into your imagination. And imagine them asking for what they need. And then imagine Jesus saying to them, may you be well. May you know peace. May healing come. Lord, in your mercy, God of tender mercies, may our eyes be opened to know how beloved we are. May our eyes be opened to the need and the pain around us and in the world. May our myriad of questions be quieted by our encounter with your love. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Mm -hmm.